This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And we're here to talk about the coronavirus pandemic, of course. School is back, sort of, as the nation engages in an emotional debate on whether to send the kids back to schools or have virtual semesters. We're now learning nearly 100,000 American children tested positive for the virus in the month of July. So does that cancel out the belief held by many, including the president, that they're practically immune to COVID? A church in Ventura County, California, willing to break the state health rule and court order in the name of God. It defiantly held indoor religious services, despite the fact the state of California has banned such gatherings. So what is it like being inside the church packed with worshipers? We just talked about schools a second ago. What about P.E. classes? Remember those? If you have a virtual semester, you can't really have P.E. No youth sports, basketball, tennis. The health experts, their concerns, that will lead to an uptick in childhood obesity, maybe other problems. The 2020 college football season is teetering on the brink. Schools and athletic conferences grapple with how to play games while keeping their student-athletes safe. We're going to talk with a Stanford player who's demanding a plan B in place before he is willing to take the field. There has been a lot of speculation when it comes to how this novel coronavirus affects young children, but six-plus months into this pandemic, and there still is not a ton of data until now. Right as the country was having heated debates over reopening schools to have kids and teachers back in the classroom, it turns out that COVID cases among children spiking. The American Academy of Pediatrics found that nearly 100,000 American kids in the second half of July tested positive for COVID-19. And that is likely an underestimate since so few kids are actually being tested. Dr. Marcus Plesham is the chief medical officer at the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials. So, doctor, we have these cases. Have we settled on how infectious kids are when you compare them to adults? Uh, No, that's the big problem that we have is we really don't have a sense of how much having kids back in school together will result in them passing it to each other. And then even more importantly, how much that's likely to lead to what we refer to as community spread, where those kids go back into their homes and their communities and then cause other people who are more likely to have more severe symptoms to get the disease themselves. Okay, so we don't know how infectious they are once they have it. I guess we have to wait for them to infect people if they can and uh, do. But we do know that they can get it. And does this new data show us, what, how easily that can happen? And are we just testing it more or are they getting it more? No, I think this data really drives home the fact that children aren't any different as far as their likelihood to to catch COVID. Um, You know, fortunately, we we do know that although some children can become quite ill, the vast majority of them do not. So, you know, having children go back to school is probably not a, a huge risk to children, which, you know, is always the first concern. But the problem is it, it really could be something that would result in just a, a, a huge increase in infection rates amongst children. Then those children would take it back home and back into the community, and, and we could see even worse surges than we've seen so far. Well, forget about taking it back home. I mean, the last time I checked, most of their teachers are older than they are. So if the uh, teachers get sick, then what's the point of having kids in classrooms with teachers that aren't there because they're out? Yeah, well, and that's been the big concern that the school teachers have raised is that although 
kids may not be likely to get that ill. Uh, you know, many teachers would get symptomatic, and some of those teachers might become severely ill or even die. And and that's and it's not just teachers. There are many other adults in schools. So putting kids back into schools on a regular basis is putting all of them at significant risk as well. Well, some schools are already starting up. Others are going to over the next couple of weeks. This new message uh, may be the correct one, but does it come a little too late for your liking? Because the, the, the original one from, from some circles that the kids are immune. It's fine. That's a pretty powerful one, A, because it can spread all over, and B, because that's what we like to hear. We want someone at least to be immune from this. Yeah, the thing that we don't know is how much a child who is infected but is not symptomatic, how likely they are to really spread it. I mean, that that's the, the hope is that in places where schools are reopening, that, that there won't be a lot of spread from, from kids amongst each other and particularly back to others. But you know, that's that's the thing that's really tricky and concerning about this is we we really, as with many things, unfortunately, with this pandemic, we really don't know how that will play out. Well, and, and isn't there something else that we don't know? And, and that is that that we're finding out almost on a daily basis where adults who were apparently asymptomatic still end up sometimes with uh, health issues related to, apparently anyway, related to uh, the coronavirus, even though they weren't particularly symptomatic. Do we really know that even if children are asymptomatic, whether or not they won't, because of an infection, develop something years later? No, we don't. I mean, that, that's, that, the big problem is there's just so much we don't know about this particular infection. And there are so many things about it that are vexing. I mean, some people get sick and become severely ill and have to go to the hospital. Other people get the virus and they don't even know it. I mean, that in itself, I, you know, I've never encountered, encountered a disease like that. So it, it's a very challenging time. And, you know, certainly there is a cost to children not being able to go back to school. There's a huge cost as far as their education and also as far as, as child care. But, you know, the, the, the real challenges here is we, we just don't understand the disease very well and we don't know what's going to happen uh, as children do go back into settings that are indoors and where, where kids are often in very close contact to each other and could easily spread the disease widely. Dr. Marcus Plesham, Chief Medical Officer at the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials. There have been restrictions on indoor religious services here in California since mid-July as COVID cases started to surge. For the most part, churches have either canceled events or moved them outdoors. But at Godspeak Calvary Chapel in Newberry Park, they are defying the ban. And just yesterday, the church ignored a court's temporary restraining order to hold indoor Sunday services. KNX reporter Emily Valdez was inside that church over the weekend. So, Emily, tell us about that. Uh, how much masking, how much social distancing was there? Uh, the two answers to that were no and no. So here's, here's how I did. I was one of the few reporters allowed to go inside because you could watch it on TV. Uh, they had a live stream, but it really didn't show the crowd. Um, Pastor McCoy let me come in. Um, I was one of the few people wearing masks. I saw one or two other masks, and we're talking hundreds of people in this place. No social distancing, no masks, plenty of hugs and handshakes. So it was like you're going back into this crazy time called 2018 when there was no pandemic. It, it really it really was like that, um, and, and that's how they wanted it to be. That's how they wanted it to be. The people, parishioners I spoke with, we're not afraid of giving, getting COVID. Um, 
Pastor McCoy had told me that he was not aware of anyone in his church that has had COVID-19, and they've been holding these open services in defiance of Ventura County Public Health Orders since May. So they've been continuing to hold them. Now, um, is everybody in his congregation getting tested regularly? It doesn't seem like it, um, that they were would be out there getting tested because they're not really concerned. So um, it does sound like, though, he doesn't know of anyone who's become sick. So there's the, the county orders for, for the health department, and then there's actually a court order against yes. this chapel saying, you know, you cannot do something on Sunday, but they did it anyways. Were there sheriff's deputies around? Is anyone trying to enforce this? And what's the pastor saying? He's just going to keep on going? Yeah, yeah, there was. So Ventura County sued the church to stop. And a judge on Friday issued a temporary restraining order against the church saying, you need to stop holding these services. Um, and I, I believe the judge's word that this is an immediate threat to public health, these indoor services that you're holding. Uh, the building holds about 1,000 to 1,500 people, if I recall, and he has three a day, so a three on Sunday. And they're packed. There were there was very few empty seats. Um, I think they were all full. I heard another estimate that there were 7,000 people came through there. There was people coming from everywhere. But anyway, um, yeah, he plans to uh, continue to hold them until the next court date, which is August. I believe it's August 21st. Um, there were no police. He had said he was ready to be cited and go to jail, and he prepared his congregation that the first 1,000 people, because in the court filings it lists his name, the pastor's name, and Joe's, one through a thousand as uh, defendants. So he believed that they would cite to the first thousand people too, but there was no police presence there at all. There was a little scuffle between some protesters and some people with the congregation. Not a big one, just a little shoving and yelling. And by, and, uh, and, and yeah. by, I'm, I'm, I'm curious just for your own safety, uh, are you concerned yourself because you were in this large uh, chapel with uh, how many people about a thousand is that what you're saying yeah, yeah. um i have a face mask on am i concerned i'm always concerned but i have to do my job i was out there in the middle of a protest too so you know that's that's just what i do is unfortunately we, we're going to get the story we have to see for ourselves and we have to um you know I, I had my pole but um and i have my face mask i didn't take it off what are you going to do when you're a reporter it's just one of the um, that's just one of the, it's just in the job description. So am I concerned? I'm over being concerned or else I'd spend all my days worrying, put it that way. <laughs> Luckily I have typo blood and I know from listening to your show that I'm most likely to come, most likely to become seriously ill. So. All right. Emily Valdez, uh, thanks for, uh, thanks for reporting and thanks for taking us inside what happened there at the uh, Calvary Chapel in Newbury Park. While millions of children across the country will learn virtually in the upcoming semester, there's one thing that they will not get, physical education. Also, youth sports have been canceled across the country, which is why health experts and educators worry there could be an increase in obesity and other dangerous illnesses. So what can parents do to make sure kids get the activity they need even without gym class or sports. Matthew Flessock was on KYW. He's the executive director of the UCLA Health Sound Body Sound Mind program. Parents, I think, are already overwhelmed with everything their child might be missing out on in terms of academics. 
um, that I don't think many parents have even stopped to consider how important physical education and being active is. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's really easy and has been easy for a long time to not focus on the myriad benefits of physical education. You know, you look at this one subject and it's the only subject in school that benefits the whole child. It improves academic performance. It improves mental health. Uh, Students sleep better. It decreases stress, decreases anxiety. It's kind of this magical subject, but even in a non-pandemic time, it is an underappreciated and underfunded subject. And so I think right now we're seeing that it's really challenging for parents to focus on that also, but I can't emphasize just how important it is to not lose sight of the value of physical education. Exactly, because now kids are just by nature less active because they're not out running around with friends and they're not doing as many outdoor activities as they normally would. So kids, I would think, are more sedentary than ever before because of this pandemic. Absolutely. And the data is showing it. There have been a number of of surveys that have gone out that are showing that even adults, too, uh, are are less active. They're they're more sedentary. There have been some moments where they've looked at Fitbit data or, you know, smartwatch data, and they've seen marked decreases in activity. And kids are, are seeing the same thing. You know, you're cooped up inside. You're doing this remote distance learning. And so it's alarming knowing that even pre-pandemic, obesity and inactivity numbers were on the rise. Now you take away the school framework, you put safe at home or shelter in place orders across the country. And yeah, you've created a real recipe and formula for inactivity. And it's something that needs to be looked at. Yeah. And even a lot of schools, you know, you're not allowed to do your sports. So that's gone as well. Absolutely. And sports are, are where most people go when they think about the place that kids can be active. Um, you know, we use, you know, your, your average adult will use a gym or they will, you know, go for runs and walks outside. And so sports are critically important and sports are really uniquely attacked during this, given the close interaction and contact that students and athletes will have. But it's yet another example of an outlet that we've been able to rely on in the past that's now gone. And let's delve a little bit deeper into the the various benefits that you quickly mentioned in terms of physical activity. First, let's talk about how it helps improve uh, or helps decrease the risk rather for obesity. Absolutely. Physical activity is directly linked to decreases in a number of chronic health conditions, uh, hypertension, type 2 diabetes. Obesity has directly been linked to a number of cancers as well. It really is the single most important thing you can do. Um, Obesity is a really, really dangerous condition. The impacts of it are are tremendous uh, from a health perspective, from a financial perspective as well. Uh, That's an impact that most people don't really think about are the costs associated with obesity. So let's talk about some ideas. Um, you know, what are some ideas for young kids, for parents who have kids, you know, that are in elementary school? What, what kind of activities can they do? I think the number one recommendation is going to be these short brain breaks throughout the day and encouraging play, simple movement. Young children are just, they're still developing their coordination. Um, I think having simple activities 
And simple moments of play broken throughout the day are going to be what really help keep kids active and keep kids garnering those benefits from physical activity. So things like maybe hopscotch, hula hoop, along those lines? Absolutely. Yeah. Those simple coordination things, like you said, hopscotch is a great one. Uh, Starting to learn coordination with balls and maybe movement patterns, locomotor activities. So you have skipping, hopping, jumping, and maybe, you know, using chalk or using cones to draw out a pattern that your child will run helps develop and formulate their basic motor skills. And uh, yeah, and you're not going to get, you know, a 16, 17 year old to go out and play hopscotch. So what, what's your suggestion for the, for, you know, teenagers? There are many, many free resources and companies that are creating free trials of online workouts and yoga and, and all these amazing, amazing activities that you can do. So I think getting teenagers to start thinking more about what are going to be the physical activities that they are going to do into adulthood? Let's start introducing them now because that's what's going to get the hook put in place long-term. The Big Ten Athletic Conference is on the brink of pulling the plug on its 2020 college football season. Probably won't be alone as other collegiate athletic conferences are grappling with how they can realistically have dozens of players, coaches, and staff together and moving in between cities without coronavirus infections taking down entire teams. It is no understatement the implications for a canceled college football team massive. Two guests, Trey John Butler, starting cornerback for the Stanford Cardinal, double majoring in political science and media studies, senior year at Stanford. And Tom McMillan is president and CEO of the Lead One Association, represents the athletics directors and programs of the 130-member universities, the Football Bowl subdivision. So, Tom, any lessons to be learned from the professional sports leagues potentially pushing forward? They've already had problems and it hasn't been that long. Well, I think the lesson from the NBA is that if you create a bubble you probably can can move forward. Um, And the problem with college sports is how do you create that bubble? And you don't have one consistent leadership model across the country. So uh, different uh, schools have different testing regimes, different standards, and I think that creates a lot of uncertainty. So, um, you know, then the other question you have to ask is, okay, if you don't play football like the MAC, and possibly the Big Ten, what are those players going to be doing? I mean, more and more schools are going to virtual classes. Will these kids go back home? Will they be safer there? Uh, there's all kinds of questions here uh, that, that I guess remain to be answered. Uh, Trajan, I think we are back with us. Yeah, I'm here. Okay, great. So uh, do you think that there is a workable solution to this, or should we just kind of throw up our hands and say, you know, so long as this pandemic is raging, we just can't do it safely? Uh, I, think, I think there is a, a workable solution. Um, players are showing that we, you know, we want to play and that we are more than willing to sacrifice what is needed to, that needs to be done for us to ensure the safety on our part. Um, we're just asking for um, our institutions to do their part, and we feel like, you know, for us, in order to play, then sort of safety, even if we are playing in-conference games only, we have to do more testing. You know, we have to do a better job um, of policing, you know, our guys and make sure everybody's safe. Um, we have to remove that uh, ability to have a debate about whether or not somebody was around somebody that tested positive. You know, it's, it's little things like that that we have to, you know, 
be more stricter um, just to make sure everybody does stay safe and so that we can have a great season. You think everybody kind of falls in line because you want to play, right? You worked so hard for this, and if the rule sheet comes out and says this is your circle and this is who you can gather with, and if somebody steps out, I'm sorry, you're you're not playing this this season. Correct, definitely. Tom, uh, it's really kind of the same question I was asking Trajan. I mean. Uh, there's everybody wants to pretend and to some degree that things are normal and they're trying to get back to do normal things but sometimes the reality of a situation is you have to accept that it's not normal and there is no way to to force it to be is that what we're going to face when it comes to to this because as you pointed out before uh, how do you maintain these sort of bubbles that people are supposed to be in that professional leagues are doing? Uh, how do you do that when, you, when you're involving younger people? It's very difficult. And, you know, I think the, the one factor that changed a lot of minds here was the incident of my, myocarditis, which is a cardiovascular inflammation uh, related from COVID-19, which has, can have permanent damage. And so... Um, we're learning more about this virus. You know, when you go back and look at the pandemic in 1918, lots of teams didn't play. Missouri didn't play. Kansas didn't play. Kansas State didn't play. They didn't have a national championship. It was very sporadic and episodic. I could see something happening here like that today, but there, and I agree, I agree wholeheartedly, there not, needs to be a whole, whole lot more testing to, to ensure that these players are safe and sound. And I think that's really the key here. And so I think that's what a lot of the other conferences are struggling with. Can we create that quasi-bubble to keep these student-athletes safe? Trey John, let's say that the bubble is created. There is testing. They give you a, a social circle that's not too much larger than the team itself, and maybe they, they shrink who you're playing. But somebody on the team, somebody at Stanford says, you know what, I'm not comfortable. And they've got a scholarship. What happens if they say no? What should happen? Uh, I definitely believe, I mean, there's a scholarship should be uh, taken care of, you know, um, with that safety, along with the eligibility. Um, um, that's the most important thing of giving players the opportunity to have a decision about whether they want to play or not uh, wanting to play. And either choice they make is perfectly fine. You know, I think coming throughout these uh, these weeks and working with different guys, you know, learning you know, about people's different lives, there are so many reasons, so many factors into why somebody may want to play and may not to play. You know, um, you know, like one that stood out to me, a particular guy I mentioned, um, player, he has shared, you know, like, he couldn't morally put on himself, maybe potentially passing on a sickness to somebody else due to the fact that he had family members who had to uh, deal with, you know, autoimmune diseases, and he grew up, you know, seeing them in the hospital and stuff. So it was like he just had that moral um, battle, you know, going on inside. Like it's, it's stuff like that. You know, each player has a different story, and, you know, at the end of the day, give them the opportunity to have the freedom to pick, you know, their decision. But whatever decision they make, honor it, protect them, and be stand by them. Tom, when we have the reports of you know votes already being taken and um, seasons canceled, do you think too many dominoes have already fallen? That it's just at this point more cancellations just they're going to happen. I, I'm not sure about that. I mean, the question is: Is there a way to make this safe for the student athletes? And I also agree wholeheartedly that if a student athlete doesn't want to play, there shouldn't be consequences either to their eligibility or 
the, or you know any any other reason. I think they their scholarships or or otherwise. Uh, but I think that uh, you, you know you asked the question. I think Trevor Lawrence asked that the other day. If kids are playing, they're not in this bubble on on campus. Presumably, a lot of these schools are going to send kids home. Are these football players going to go back home? And will that be a safer environment and so forth? So there's a lot of questions to ask here. I actually think that there, again, we will see a hybrid season go forward. I don't think it will be universally canceled. Um, I may be wrong about that. I think we're learning new things about the virus every day. Here's the bottom line. The bottom line is that there can only be football if the student-athletes are safe and sound. That is the bottom line. Tom McMillan, President CEO, Lead One Association, Trey John Butler, starting cornerback for Stanford. Thanks to you both. Americans have been renouncing their U.S. citizenship at a record pace amid the current political turmoil and the stress of the coronavirus. In fact, a report by Bambridge Accountants says nearly 6,000 Americans gave up their citizenship in the first six months of this year. Now, that's Now, that's twice more than the total number of people who gave up their U.S. passports during all of 2019. Until now, the numbers had actually been dropping sharply for several years. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. And stay well. 